Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome, everyone, to another Monday morning edition of Inside the Firm. I'm here with Michelle Cohn. She is a graduate of Tulane University, has worked uh, for over 14 years in various different firms on projects ranging from a performance art center in Las Vegas, seven-story mixed-use buildings, a medical clinic, and much, much more before joining NCARB in 2014. Uh, at NCARB, she held positions of examination development manager, examination assistant director, and is now the examination assistant vice president. Welcome to Inside the Firm. Great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I, I want to go way back. What may what made you want to become an architect? When did that pop up? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, probably like a lot of architects. It was, you know, I was always that kid playing with Legos, um, just always interested in just design and, you know, drawing something and seeing it come to life, you know, whether that, you know, as Legos or as an actual building, right? Like, how did these buildings come to be? Um and architecture felt like the right fit for me because I enjoyed, you know, the engineering and the math side, but too much of it felt a little bit boring. Um, so really wanted to exercise that creative muscle also. So yeah, in high school, you know, applied to architecture school, just like so many of us have been through that process. And as you mentioned, went off to Tulane University in New Orleans. Um, and that, uh, at that time, it was a five-year B-ARC degree. Now it's an M-ARC, but I received the... Um, my B arc at Tulane and then set out to become an architect. Yeah. Go riptide seagulls. Are they? Uh, it's actually the green, the green wave, the green wave. Oh, the good. Wave. Yeah. It's a, um, it's kind of like a fierce looking pelican. There you go. Yeah. yeah it was, yeah. I looked up the mascot and it's like riptide and a pelican. I'm like, all right, whatever they, <laughs> yeah, the pelican is the state bird of Louisiana. So good to know. Um, speaking of Tulane, uh, what was one of your hardest or funnest projects that you did in architecture school? Oh, wow. That is such a great question. Um, I have not thought about architecture school in a while, I'll admit. Um, but I do remember, um, I, I think one of the hardest projects I worked on, actually this one I distinctly remember, was uh, we were doing, um, it was an airport project, and uh, we were each designing like a, a, a hangar on the airport. And, and that was really hard because there wasn't a whole lot of original design that can go into at least that portion of an airport because it's so much based on just spacing requirements and just understanding how, how the, the operational side of an airport happens. Um, one of my most fun projects, I mean, I, I guess I could say my, my thesis in fifth year, um, which, you know, I really was looking at you know, a portion of New Orleans that became, I think, pretty well known years later when, when Hurricane Katrina hit, but just in the neighborhood of Treme, uh, there is an expressway, the I-10 expressway that runs right down the middle of Claiborne Avenue. It's, the expressway is about 20 feet elevated above the, the roadway, and it really cut into this historic neighborhood. Um, there was a lot of uh, Black and African-American community that, you know, had lived in this neighborhood, owned homes in this neighborhood for generations, and this expressway came in in the 60s and cut this neighborhood in half. And so my thesis really looked at just the history of that and like 
how can we better utilize the space to kind of knit that area back together? So that was a really fun project for me, just to be able to learn about New Orleans and just do something that really touched the fabric of the city. Yeah, cool. Going into um, professional, the I think you've worked at at least four firms. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. I had one firm that I interned at in summers when I was in college and then uh, worked at three firms after graduating. Yeah. Could you answer the same question about firms, your hardest and your most fun project throughout, you know, your years? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I don't know if I would have a hardest and an easiest from every firm, but some highlights. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. just from the conglomerate. Yeah. Of sure. Um, I mean, I remember my first job out of school. I was working on a design firm that, you know, primarily were, did... Um, we were the design firm that often would partner with like a local architect of record because we were doing a lot of work outside the DC area at that time. Um, and so I, one of the first projects that, that I managed was uh, a small museum in Fort Worth and we were renovating it, doing a small expansion. And I mean, it was hard, but also really fun just to get to like, really get knee deep into that process. Um, went down to Texas a lot to be part of those construction job site meetings. Um, and I think that was, for me, it was the first opportunity to like really learn how a set is put together, you know, how the building is put together, you know, how to just go through that process with a client and with consultants. Um, so that was a really great project um, earlier on in my career. Um, the last firm that I worked at prior to joining NCARB, we were doing a lot of affordable housing. Um, and so that, that also was, I mean, I, I learned something new every day, even after being licensed for several years at that point, it was still every day felt like a learning experience. You know, affordable housing projects have a lot of um, requirements attached to them that come with the funding. They also move very quickly once that funding is in place. So just understanding how that process goes, and again, trying to make a really good product that meets the requirements and you know is going to improve someone's life um, by you know, providing that clean, safe housing. Um, really enjoyed, again, very challenging at times, but also just really enjoyable. Yeah. Um, how did you come into working at NCARB? Was it something you've always wanted? It, because <laughs> it seems like there's a, there's a divide, I don't know if that's the right word, between... Um, working in a practice and working in an MCARB. And I think a lot of people think like, oh, you, you know, people are just involved in that forever. And, you know, that's where, how they, they grow in that. But you distinctly had a bunch of architecture profession, you know, professional experience yeah. before going in. So how did that sure. come? Well, and, and I should say, I mean, at NCARB, we, there are, there are over a hundred people on staff at NCARB. There are eight of us who are architects. Eight. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, and so most people at NCARB are just professionals and other, um, you know, non-architecture capacities who you know do a lot of really important work to support the work of NCARB. Uh, those of us but like who are like business majors or, or stuff like that. Sure. I mean, we've got a really talented um, communications team. We have a really talented um, information systems team that does a lot of just of our software development. Uh, we have a really dedicated customer relations team. They're the people answering your phone calls and emails. We have uh, an entire team um, that really works with all of the member boards. We can talk more about 
what NCARB is, but the members of NCARB are the 55 state and jurisdictional licensing boards that regulate architecture. So we have a team of folks who, are, I mean, they are like in the weeds in terms of like what these jurisdictions are doing, the various requirements across our jurisdictions, um, and they work very closely with those jurisdictions um, to, to the extent that we can streamline the licensure process and make sure that um, do what we can to ensure reciprocity across jurisdictions, to ensure the jurisdictions are, are hopefully on the same page, kind of moving forward together in terms of how we regulate licensure in this country. Yep. And I think maybe I interrupted or we get off, or maybe I just forgot the transition from professional you going oh, into NCARB. Right, right, right. So how did I get to NCARB? Yeah. So yes. So I was practicing architecture and I was going to say that all of the architects on staff at NCARB, all of us practiced architecture. We we're all licensed before we came to NCARB. Um, while I was still working in the profession, I, I mean, obviously I, I went through, uh, at that time it was the IDP, I took my exams, I got licensed. Along the way, I started getting involved with the emerging professionals at my local AIA chapter. Um, I started volunteer teaching some of the ARE prep classes at our local AIA chapter. Um, and then through that, I found out about this volunteer position with NCARB as an IDP coordinator. Now we have the licensing advisor program. At that time, it was the IDP coordinator program. But the intent has always been volunteers in communities around this country helping candidates get through that licensure process. Sometimes it can be just, it can be more helpful to speak to someone, you know, in Colorado, in your community when you have questions versus always calling NCARB to get a response, right? Mm -hmm. And so as a volunteer in that, um, you know, I was able to get some extra training, you know, just learn more about the licensure process. And I really was developing this interest in just mentorship and licensure and kind of thinking about just that big picture of the profession. Um, and so I, I was at, it was really, it was the right opportunity that came along at the right time when I was starting to think, what's next for me career-wise? I found out about this position with NCARB um, in the exam uh, exam department. Um, and as you mentioned, I started off as a manager in the exam department and seven years later, um, still here. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that, you know, I, I mean, it sounds cliched. Every day is something new though. My job has remained interesting. I was thinking about it this morning, like how has it been seven years? Um, Cause it's really, um, it's just gone by like that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I do want to ask some questions about the transition from ARE 4.0 to 5.0, but mm-hmm. I don't want to ask them if you, were you involved in that process? Um, yeah. Okay. So let's just start with the, the basics. Um, what was the reason for it? And, you know, what was, what was the process of that transition. I, I can probably get more nitty gritty, but maybe, maybe you can just give a, a broader behind the scenes, what, what you were trying to do with the move from 4.0 to 5.0. Sure. Um, okay. So any big changes like that, right? Like moving to a new version of the exam that tends to come from what we call a practice analysis, right? So practice analysis is a study of the profession. Okay. And this is not something just in architecture. I mean, any 
licensed profession is going to occasionally do a practice analysis to understand, well, what's, what's the current way that this profession is practiced? Because we wanna make sure that all of our programs, especially the programs for licensure, are really reflective of how that profession is being done, right? So uh, we had done a practice analysis in 2012, and that's typically done like every, I don't know, seven to 10 years-ish, give or take. Um, and that is a pretty in-depth survey of practitioners within architecture. The results of that practice analysis was that was really the starting point for moving from 4.0 to 5.0. Um, and there are a number of things that came out of that practice analysis. Certainly just how has the current practice of architecture been evolving since the last time the practice analysis had been done. But thinking specifically about 4.0 versus 5.0, um, I don't know if you remember, 4.0 was a very, and all the versions before that, they were very siloed, right? There was one division on structural systems. There was a division on construction documents, um, division on, um, let's see, mechanical and electrical systems, right? So it was sort of like these silos of content. Yep, and I did the um, half and the half so that I could get experience oh, okay. in both because I knew I had people yeah. in the firm going up and I wanted to be able to talk about both. Yeah, okay, cool. So, um, you know, coming out of the practice analysis, it was really, there was this science that, you know what, we, we need a more integrated approach to the exam content, right? Because having those silos of content, it wasn't giving... NCARB, and by extension, all of the licensing boards, this opportunity to see how do candidates really synthesize information mm -hmm. and make the types of judgments that like you actually have to make in practice. Because in practice, I mean, you know, we don't think about structures in a vacuum, right? It's not like we come to work and be like, well, this week, I'm going to do the structure on my building, and then I'm never going to think about structures again until the next building, right? Like we don't, we don't do architecture that way. And so the way that the content, which was largely stayed the same, the way it was rearranged in 5.0, of course, took out those silos and, and, um, and instead structured it in terms of, you know, the typical phases of architectural practice, right? So practice analysis, you know, we kind of think about that as sort of like that first step of developing a typical architectural project and I'll just keep going with the, the structures topic. What do we think of there is, okay, like big picture, how big is this building gonna be? How are we gonna meet the client's needs? You know, we're starting to think about possible types of structural systems, right? We get into kind of early schematic design, you know, we're selecting the structural system. By the time we get into construction documents, now we're integrating that system with everything else happening in the building. And then in construction, well, now we're dealing with all the problems that you know come up on site. And so that's how that content is now distributed throughout the exam. So it just more closely mirrors actual practice. Yeah, that's so interesting because one of the big topics you know, that we'll go over is exams because NCARB is exams, that's the public face. And a lot of the stuff you've heard, everything I've said, you've probably heard before in some way or another, but it, I'm so glad I asked that question because that's one of the, I don't know, we'll go into more later, but the issues is like focused versus broad and cross-pollinating ideas and, and um, all that other stuff. So very, very interesting. Um, what do you, uh, how, how, is it, how is it going? Um, the 
Is there a continual improvement process or is things being gathered for a 6.0? Is that 20 years down the line, you know, or is it just, Hey, you just do these kind of practice. I forgot the term you used, um, analysis. And then Mm -hmm. if it indicates, um, so yeah, where are you in that process? Is there a, is there a secret 6.0 being developed that you want to break on inside the firm or, or is it, or do you refine 5.0? Yeah. How does that work? I mean, I will tell you, and this is not, this is not breaking news. Oh, come on. Just say it's breaking news. They don't know. (laughs) At some point, sure. There will be an ARE 6.0. I don't, I don't have a date. I don't have any further information, but I, I hopefully that that is not news because for, you know, folks who've been around for a while, you know, even if you've been licensed for a while, right? Like, you know, that it evolves, right? I mean, I know that there are people practicing out there who took the paper and pencil exam. I personally tested an ARE 3.1. We just talked about ARE 4.0. Now we're on ARE 5.0. So hopefully it's not a surprise that at some point in our futures, there will be an ARE 6.0. And, you know, as far as um, the practice analysis I was mentioning earlier, um, yeah, actually we, we are in the midst of launching our next, um, analysis of the practice. Um, so you, know, you, you might see some more information coming out about that actually in the coming year or so. Um, and yeah, we probably are going to hear something about that that's going to inform some future changes to not just the ARE, maybe AXP also. Um, you know, and that's, you know, when you think about like, well, how can, how can I, just one individual, you know, make an impact? Well, it's, you know, those opportunities to participate in, in surveys like that, in um, focus groups, you know, volunteering. I mean, all of that is, you know, are ways that people can get involved and make that, that impact on the profession. Yeah. Cool. One, one of the hottest buttons of the test is the pass rate. Um, you know, what, where it's at. Um, and I guess the first question is, when going from ARE 4.0 to 5.0, how do you, what's the process like for how do you judge what the pass rate is on, on a whole new test? So when we moved from 4.0 to 5.0, um, and, and you probably remember this having, you know, taken some of the 5.0 divisions, um, we did not issue score reports um, mm-hmm. right away, right? There was, there was a, this opportunity to be an early tester in 5.0, and you took the actual 5.0 exam, um, but we didn't issue score reports on that right away because we were collecting data in order to do what's called a cut score process. Um, There's a ton of information about this on our website, but I'll give you the high level overview, which is a cut score process is basically a, a scientific way of establishing what should that passing threshold be, right? So this is not, those of us at NCARB saying, I think candidates should score here, right? Like that's not at all what happens. Um, We work with psychometricians, which are, um, I like to say they're people who really study the science of testing. So we have an outside firm uh, with the psychometric support, you know, we've been working with for a number of years. And so they really led us through this, very analytical process to collect data from, you know, we needed a minimum number of candidates in each division. 
to take that exam. Uh, we are then able to evaluate that data. We work through our examination committee, which is again, a volunteer committee of architects from across the country. Um, we had special cut score focus groups, which again, were volunteer architects, part of these really focus group panels, looking at each of those divisions. Um, and then finally through NCARB's board of directors um, who you know, kind of issued that final, like this is what it's going to be. So there was, there was a lot of layers to that process, a lot of um, review and oversight about it. And again, all supported by our outside consultants um, to really establish what is that cut score going to be. We couldn't just say, well, in 4.0 is this, so therefore in 5.0 it's going to be that, because like we said, the exam is completely overhauled. I mean, we, we changed all the content, um, the, the, where all the content is located on the exam. We changed the structure of the exam. Uh, we got rid of the vignettes. We added case studies. So there are enough changes that we had to do this cut score process from scratch. Um, but to, you know, it's, it was a, a very fair and valid process to establish what should that cut score be you know, in this new exam. And part of, you know, I looked up a little bit, part of the cut score is to make sure that things are fair because you have to mix up the questions and not all the questions are the same in uh, how hard they are, right? So, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there might be a mix of questions that make a text test harder or easier than another one. And that test is judged accordingly. So that's one, right? Um, but it, during that process with those consultants and that other group, was it, uh, here's the easiest example. Um, so I'm a contractor, you have to take the contractor's test and they say you have to get 75%. You know, like that's, they just made it 75%. At some time through that process, was it, hey, they have to know about 75% of this material. It will change based on the test, but like, I'm not saying 75% is the number. That's just the contractor stuff. Is that part of that process? Like how much they have to know? Um, I mean, it's not exactly done like that. I mean, eventually there, there is a number that's, that's pegged, right? Um, which I guess is maybe analogous to saying 75% because I could also just say it's so many items. Right, it could be. So many questions, wrong, right? Yep, I can't remember. Eventually, yeah, I mean, there is a number, um, but, you know, going back to your previous point, right, that number is going to be different, um, certainly across the divisions, but also, as, as you were mentioning, there's, um, each division has, has several forms that are, um, that, that are randomly assigned at the test center. Uh, so for construction and evaluation, maybe there's four different forms of that or versions. Um, and each of those covers the same percentage of each content area. They're all equated to be, um, you know, the same level of difficulty, but you're right that there might be like a couple more hard questions on one versus the other. And so there might be a slight tweak to that cut score on one versus the other so that no one is penalized for randomly receiving a form that's a touch harder than someone else, right? So, I mean, we take that fairness very seriously. Um, I mean, as far as, you know, how that number is set, I mean, again, it's just, it's part of that cut score process that I was outlining. 
as far as um, pulling in data from candidates who were, you know, among that early tester group, you know, a, a cut score panel of volunteers, you know, reviewing that, reviewing all of the items very carefully, you know, looking at, um, you know, the performance of candidates to just kind of establish a baseline. Um, and then, yeah, recommending um, a cut score range and eventually, you know, it's our board of directors that um, has made that final determination. So, you know, there's a number of layers to the process um, that, that do arrive at a number. I don't know if that helps answer your question there. It, it does. It does. Um, and uh, a lot, do you know the ARE Facebook group? I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but I've I think heard of it, it. Yeah. It's one of the bigger ones where, where people mm -hmm. go together and, and that's one of the major concerns is, you know, Hey, pass and fail and stuff like that. So um, the most recent ARE pass rate, so there's six different tests and they range, you know, 51%, 63%, 50, 45, 57 and 66 for an average of 55%. Um, but if you know about compounding, so essentially like, let's say you're going to flip a coin, coin is 50, 50, right? Have a 50% chance, but what are the chances that you're going to get heads on all three or pass all six of it? Right? So if you flip a coin three times, it's not 50% that you get all three. It's actually a half times a half times a half. So the compounding rate for passing all the tests at one, at one, you know, like passing each one successfully just one time is 2.7%. Um, that might be skewed because some people might fail multiple times and there could be people that go through. So I don't know if you guys have the number of how many pass each one test on, on the first try. Um, but comparing that to some other tests, like the medical test has an average, there's three tests of 96.6% uh, and a compounding rate of 90%. Um, the bar has an average of 80%. Um, the PE has an average of 65%. But for people with five years of experience or no more, that's 70%. Um, so the question is, right now, is NCARB... Uh, content with that pass rate, especially knowing that a lot of the times if you compound it, like passing all of them probably isn't going to happen. And if not, is there anything being done to improve that or look at that? Oh, you're muted. So you just threw out like a whole bunch of stuff yeah. there. <laughs> so yes. um, I'll try to try to respond to as much as I can, but feel free to ask if I forget something. Yes. Um, I, I guess my, my first reaction to your analogy of flipping the coin and compounding those pass rates is passing the ARE isn't about flipping a coin, right? It's, it's about preparing for the exam. Um, and for that exam, you know, is that opportunity for you to demonstrate your competency to practice. So I, I guess I'm, I'm not quite sure if that I don't agree with, with your coin flipping analogy there. Um, I mean, I understand what you're saying as far as an overall pass rate and all, but, but I, I do hope that candidates understand that this isn't random, right? I mean, these, these exams are you know, big picture. This is how your jurisdiction, right? Whether Colorado or wherever, you know, assesses 
that you are competent and that you have earned the license to practice architecture. Yeah. So uh, I do agree that there's obviously preparation that goes into taking the exam. You know, I know candidates have all different ways of studying and preparing. We can certainly talk about that as well, but, but I don't think it's a coin flip um, as far as whether or not you pass one or pass all six. And, and the so, coin flip was only analogous to uh, let people know what compounding is and, and, and how that works. Um, I actually don't have a, a, a problem with a high bar. Um, I actually, I really enjoy it. I was in the military. I remember going into college and basically everyone but me and my roommate failed um, the anthropology exam, the first one. Um, uh, and when everyone, everyone complained. Like the whole class was complaining and, and me and my roommate were sitting in the front row and the TA said, study harder. And I just laughed and I just loved it. I think maybe some of the, uh, the complaints isn't that it's hard. I think that's good. I think it's how, I think people think it's unfair. That's what I think people think it is, right? So, um, Here's an example. I asked one of my friends is a doctor. A couple of my friends are a doctor. And I, and I, before I found the stats, I said, Hey, how's your medical exams? What's the pass rate? He's like, Oh, it's high. And I go, well, it's low in architecture. He's like, well, it's, it's high in the medical school because, um, basically, you know, you have to, you have to get into medical school and that's difficult. And then you have to go through all your stuff and then you have to be, uh, you know, there's different levels to it and then you study and then you take it. And these are my friends from, from, grade school, basically. Um, and I go, well, the same is true for architecture school. And I can tell you, and my friends can tell you, these people are no more, no more or less as, as smart as myself. Um, and and um, I failed one test. Um, I thought 5.0 was a huge improvement on 4.0. I really liked 5.0. Um, but the, the, the challenge is that I know, and I think a lot of people do study extremely hard, do do their job extremely well in the firm, do go to five years of college, do study for six years. And then all of a sudden the test says, you know, you fail. Um, one quote, it was from the president of George, St. George University for law. He goes, if our exam rate dips below 90%, that's a cause of concern for us. So them not being prepared for the test. And I guess, you know, we could probably go into, um, you know, why, why that might be right. And one of the first things is, have you have any, there's a bunch of questions that are, you know, check three that apply. Right. Um, and essentially that's a, a compounding question, right? Because are those scored, you know, for each one of those three, do you get a point or if you, you, ha you have to get all three of them to get a point, correct? Which is what I assumed, right? Right. So there's no partial credit. So every item is worth one point. Um, and some items take longer to answer than others, right? So a multiple choice, select one, move on, that might take you a lot less time than, you know, we call it the check all that apply, where it's going to say check the three or check the four, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, versus even like on our current exam, the drag and place items, hot spots, you know, some of those do take more time. Um, and I mean, something I, I say to candidates all the time is, be strategic, maximize your opportunity to earn points. So if you're looking at a question, you think, oh, this is gonna take me a while, you know, flag it and move on 
and, you know, make sure you get to as many questions as you can, because that's how you're going to earn your points. And that's ultimately how the exam is scored. You know, you pass or fail, depending on how many questions you got correct overall. Do you have, is there data? And I know you don't have it on the top of your head. If those questions are less likely to pass than other questions. So, um, I mean, data is a really great, great question. And I, I don't have, I mean, big picture, I can't, I can't go into like specific questions. Of course. Yes. Yes. For sure. You know, I mentioned the psychometricians that we work with on, you know, on our cut score process that happens like, you know, that once in a while time when we overhaul the exam, we actually work with those same psychometricians on a regular basis every year, day in and day out. Right. Because as candidates are taking the exam, like today, candidates taking their exam, uh, not only are, you know, their exams are being scored and score reports are being released, but we're constantly gathering that data of how they did overall on the exam, but also at that item level. And so we are for sure gathering that data. Um, and usually about, about once a year, we have a massive um, uh, review of all the statistics, um, you know, that are coming in kind of over the course of the previous 12 months. Um, to look at, you know, hey, are there some items that are just underperforming compared to other items? You know, why could that be? Is it is it because something about this topic area has changed that this isn't relevant? Is it something about the item was written poorly and, you know, it's it's confusing and, you know, therefore candidates are just getting tripped up on it? You know, is there something that's actually, um, you know, Everyone is getting this question correct. So now is it just sort of like a, a worthless, you know, question that is not really assessing competence? Um, you know, we look at a lot of data like that, uh, but also, you know, kind of throughout the year in between these big reviews is, you know, an item might get flagged to say, uh-oh, like something is going on here. You know, we need to look at this right away. So, you know, there's a lot of ways that we're evaluating that data, you know, to really be able to kind of, keep the exam functioning correctly, um, you know, working correctly for our candidates. You know, you asked previously about, you know, pass rates and is NCARB going to do something about pass rates? You know, it's important to remember that NCARB sets a cut score. We don't set pass rates. Our member boards don't set pass rates, right? The, the whole point of the exam is to, you know, establish or assess your ability to practice independently and, and the pass rate is just, it's a reflection of, of, you know, the candidates who took it within this time frame and how they did. I get it, that candidate studied. I mean, I took, you know, 3.1 was nine divisions. I totally remember studying for that. It was not fun. Yep. But, you know, we all go through that process, right? And so sometimes, you know, when you think about, pass rates on the ARE relative to pass rates on medical exams, you know, it's important to remember that just the whole process of getting to that point of taking medical exams is just different than taking licensure exams. You know, a residency, a medical residency is far more regimented than exam experience, uh, architecture experience programs, right? Everyone goes through the AXP, but your individual firm that you work at is just going to be very different from the various firms that I worked at and that anyone else works at. You know, we all kind of come into the exam with the experience that we've gained up to that point, 
But certainly there's a variety of firms in this country. There's a variety of experiences that candidates are getting. Um, and so I, you know, I really encourage candidates to just, you know, if, if they're struggling with certain topic areas or, you know, certain things just aren't clicking, you know, it's, it's really thinking about, well, well, what else can I do to kind of supplement what I'm already learning? Is it just more experience in the field? Is it just a different way of looking at things? Um, you know, because that, I certainly would not expect everyone to come to the exam with, you know, the same set of experiences, just because, you know, every firm in this country is just going to be so different. Every region, you know, we all do things a different way. Um, you know, the exam is not going to be biased towards one region or another. Obviously, everyone across the country takes it. Um, but knowing that, yeah, you might get some questions about designing a building in a cold climate and you live in Florida, well, maybe that's, you know, another thing that you need to just study more than say someone who lives in North Dakota, right? So, I mean, yeah. there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pieces that go into that. Um, and, you know, kind of the, the extra piece that I would add there is in some ways, you know, to the extent that, you know, any, any licensed architects are, you know, are listening today and thinking like, well, how can I support the candidates in my firm, you know, because I want them to pass too. You know, again, it's like, how do you expose, how do supervisors, you know, expose the candidates in their firms to a variety of opportunities and, you know, provide them those different learning opportunities in practice that they can then, you know, apply to their exam and also to their future practice. Yeah, two points. I, I thought that was great there. One, and, and this relates back to the multiple, uh, the multiple answers in one question. So everything I reference comes from the, the handbook because I don't want to give anything out. And sure. one of them is about budgeting and whether something is an allowance, an alternative, or a unit price. And you have to kind of match them, right? And the experience that, that ties into what I'm going to go next is that you know, um, I've had the experience where, okay, you know, like I see in that, that this one's probably going to be allowance and I'm like 99% sure that that's going to be the answer. Right. And then, oh, okay, this one, like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be uh, alternative. And I, I have a high confidence of that. Right. Um, but then the, the next one or two, maybe it's like a 25% a chance, right. Of, of, of me knowing for sure that that's what you're asking because I might've done it a different way at my firm. Um, literally have done that exact thing a different way, but I think that they're asking like, what is the standard that, you know, the, the textbook answer and that happens a lot and how people think I'm reading this pricing book and this people are very uh, successful to loss aversion, you know, like that dominates their mind more than gain aversion is, you know, if you had to, I won't go into it, but loss aversion is huge. So once you have those multiple things, even if it was a high confidence of you knew the first part of that 99%, the first part of it was 80%, the second one was 20%, the chances of you getting that right now dropped dramatically because of, you know, natural compounding, you know, to below 50%. And you know, like, okay, now that's in their head. So from the ARE Facebook, we got you know, there's comments like likely failed on the test today. It's my third try. I don't know how many times I have to reread tabs and reread questions. Not sure what I'm missing out on. Um, another comment is 
did worse on one retest and better on second retest, but failed them both. Um, went back and forth on a lot of uh, questions. Um, so that that's where, and then and then going to basically the, you know, you set the standard, right? Here's the standard. Here's the test, and then other people need to meet the standard. The I'll give an example, and then a question. So the example is. In basic training, you go through basic training for 12 weeks, um, and then you literally have to take a test, right? Um, and you can take it multiple times, but normally the pass rate is 80%. It's literally like, um, you know, how do you call in for fire? How do you dress a wound? Stuff like all the stuff that you learn. If the person, if the group doing the test, which is different drill sergeants, if the pass rate was 50% and you didn't graduate basic training, people would say, what is going wrong in the preparation? What is going wrong in the preparation? Um, and that might be on the universities, on the testing help people, you know, the people that provide these practice exams um, and the firms. So the question is, what is MCARB doing? And, and that goes back to the first question. If the average is 51%, is that acceptable? And if it's not, or if it is, then it is. If it's not, then what, what is MCARB doing to, to help those other institutions that basically do the prep work to make sure that they can pass those tests? I feel like there's a disconnect there. Well, um, I mean, great question. And, you know, just remember, I mean, the mission of, of NCARB, you know, certainly includes helping people along the path to licensure, right? I mean, that's, that's just inherently part of, part of what we do. And that, you know, we, we want people to complete the programs and earn that license and be able to, you know, keep going forward with their careers. Um, you know, in terms of what, what are we doing, you know, it's, it's, there, there's a lot of, you know, we just talked about, you know, education, experience, examination, right? There's a lot of factors that come into this. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the exam already. Um, and, you know, we provide a lot of resources for our candidates uh, to help them prepare for the exam. So we've got, you mentioned the ARE handbook uh, that, that covers, you know, content with a lot of sample questions for candidates. Uh, we have a lot of um, prep videos, you know, available. Well, they're on YouTube, but you, know, you can access them through our website. We have the ARE community, which several of us, you know, on the exam team are moderators of that, happy to answer candidates' questions. There's also just a supportive community of candidates on there answering each other's questions. And, you know, I also want to point out within the exam handbook is a lot of recommended study resources, right? So the, I, I, I don't recall the details on the item that you were just describing, but inside the handbook, you know, we have information about why the right answer is right, why the wrong answer is wrong, and what, like, what's the, what's the book that that, that, that comes out of, essentially. Um, so when we have that list of recommended study resources in the ARE handbook, those are the, the primary resources that are used in developing all of the content on the exam, right? Yeah. And I know that there is also a robust community of third-party test prep providers, but just focusing for a moment on those primary resources in the handbook, those are the books that the volunteer architects who write the exam content, that's what they're using to develop yeah. all the content on the exam. So, 
I know some candidates say that's like $4,000 worth of books. And I get it. Like, don't go buy $4,000 worth of books, right? You know, a lot of the reason that we provide as lengthy a list as we do is to establish that, hey, if you have any of the books on this list, those are going to be some great study resources for you, right? Like start with what you have. I mean, some of those are books that we might've had when we were in college. Some are books that might be on the bookshelf in your firm. Some are books that might be at your local library, right? So it's like, hey, here are some good starting points for studying for this exam. So, you know, we provide a lot of those resources for our candidates. As far as um, third-party test prep providers, you know, I can tell you that when we actually, it was in 20, early 2016, before we launched ARE 5.0, which was in November of 2016. So it was like like February-ish of 2016. We actually hosted a a two-day, I don't know, like symposium almost at NCARB's office for third-party test prep providers. It was an open invitation that went out. We had, I don't remember now, maybe like 10 or so test prep providers who came to our office and spent two days learning about 5.0. Granted, that was, you know, it was five years ago already. It feels like a long time. Mm. But, you know, we understand that a lot of candidates rely on those third-party test prep resources, and we wanted to help those, those companies, you know, get their materials ready so that candidates would be ready to, you know, get into the new exam when it launched. Yeah. So certainly maintaining that open communication with um, test prep providers NCARB has an approved test prep provider program, which um, enables third-party test prep providers to submit their materials for review to NCARB. We have a separate committee um, of, again, volunteer architects who look at that, provide feedback to test prep providers, you know, and ultimately are able to say, yeah, this, these materials, you know, cover the content areas as defined on the 5.0 test specification to hopefully give candidates a little bit more assurance for the materials that have that, um, you know, stamp on it that, yeah, these, these do a good job of getting into all of the various content areas that you need to know. Um, We also have in terms of ARE support for our candidates, the demonstration exam. And I know, especially with some of the changes that took place uh, last December, when we introduced online proctoring, there was a lot of concern from candidates about change, right? So we have a full-length demo exam. It's available on our website, also inside everyone's NCARB record. It's available to licensed architects as well as to candidates, so that way everyone can see what's going on. Um, And that allows candidates to... Again, take, it's a three hour, I think 75 item exam, try out all of the same tools, all of the same um, formatting and features that they would see in the test center or in their online proctored exam. And, you know, just understand what it is before their actual testing. Yeah, I think this conversation is connecting a lot of dots. Um, and you're almost reading my, my mind there. Uh, talking about all the resources and, 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 and you've heard this stuff. Um, there, there are a lot of resources. There's 39 resources. Um, and it was very interesting, the big shift. And I remember this years ago, but I, I just forgot it of, of 4.0 was siloed. 5.0 is combined. And that's a lot of the feedback of the difficulty. 
with all these resources and a bunch of people, you know, here's some quotes. I'm struggling with content. I have a hard time absorbing it. Um, another one is um, I felt like half of the CE tests was on the PDD test. Um, another one, the CE test, CE test um, said wasn't a standalone. It, you know, like I feel like I could only pass this after doing the five other exams. And this makes sense now when you talk about kind of combining that we aren't thinking of things in, in isolated silos, right? So my, my, my question then is, we, you, uh, NCARB did that change to more reflect practice, which is probably a, a good decision. I think there could be one more step to more reflect practice also. Um, when you are, for there's kind of three recommendations, but it's the same concept here. Um, a lot of people have trouble with the contracts, right? So there'll be a specific question about the contract that they'll have to memorize or know or something like that. Well, I know just because I'm a little bit owner, I, I run my firm is that, hey, if, if I am you know 20 years experience and I'm doing contracts all the time, I can come up with those answers like that. But someone that's five years in, they are not in contracts all the time and they shouldn't be. And if they ever had a question on contract, they should go reference the contract and go look at it. Um, the same thing is true for code. I love the amount of code questions that was in the contractor test. I think that the code questions, I almost wish there was many, many more code questions in, in, the, in the architecture test. I think that's a lot of the issues. I think that's a lot of the problem solving that comes in. Obviously there's design and these other things, but honestly, I feel like, well, they probably don't test too much on design. I can't remember all the um, ARE 5.0, but schools have design taken care of. Um, if you're terrible at, at design and, and uh, you know, like, putting uh, things next to each other, you are just terrible and somehow they let you get through school. But the idea is that in practice and in the construction uh, contractors test, you can have the IBC. So why on, on, so there's certain tests that deal with contracts. Let's start there. The PCM, the PJM, and the CE test. I think they should have all the contracts there because there's so many contracts and to do a specific question on a, on a contract is whether, you know, at that night you remembered it or didn't remember it. And if you are five years out, you would go back and reference that. Um, is if you have a, I think people should have a general idea of the, the contracts. They should know which ones they are. They should know what's in there, but that and the code questions, there's, I, I feel like there's sometimes questions that are, specific questions on obscure issues. Those are fine to have in there, but why can't they have the reference materials for the contracts for those three tests? The code questions are in the other three tests. So uh, PA, PPD, and PDD are all the code questions. Why can't you bring the IBC for that? Um, and then the last one, one of the most referenced one, because like, like we mentioned, there's 39 reference materials. Um, and What's hard about this too is that 13 of those reference materials are referenced to be in three or more tests. Um, 36 of them, so almost all of them are on, on two or more tests. So it's like you're going back to the same things. It's where people feel like they're studying for the same thing again, or it's, it's cross-pollinating a lot. But one of the best uh, references on there 
is the professional, I'm forgetting which one it is, but maybe you know the, the book, the professional architect's guide to professional practice, um, yeah. whatever. The, architect's yep. handbook. Yeah. Yep. The, the handbook. That, that's a great one. Yeah. <clears throat> so that would be one, hey, you can bring that one to all of the tests, right? Um, as a reference guide. What do you think of, of that? Um, so again, you, you, when you ask questions, you ask like six questions <laughs> all at once. I'm, I'm realizing that. Sorry. Now. Do you want me to focus it to a... No, no, no. I'll, okay. um, I'll try to answer okay. all the questions at once. Um, hey, I, I'm doing the yeah. compounding questions like the ARE. <laughs> well, I guess you're not compounding my chance of not answering. Um, so I, I mean, I think, okay, so a few things there. So you're right. Code, contracts... Those are definitely topics that appear on multiple exams. And so similar to what we were saying about structures, you know, a while, you know, earlier in our conversation, you know, code is another really good one to think about because, you know, it appears on multiple divisions because we think about building code throughout the entire process of constructing a building. I mean, when I was practicing architecture, you know, those early code questions are, well, what are my zoning restrictions? You know, what's the, the building type that I can put here on this particular site for the occupancy that I'm anticipating, right? And then we get into some more, you know, some more of the details of, you know, the design and thinking about, you know, specific materials and, um, you know, egress distances, you know, stairs, like all of those kind of details of it. And I mean, even sometimes in construction, a code question still comes up. I mean, I remember being on a job site for an affordable housing project. We were renovating buildings and the contractor said, yeah, this bathroom that you designed were three inches too short. What are we going to do about it? Right. And That's so like, fun, we're there fun. and like, yeah. you know, pulling out our ADA diagrams and like, how are we going to fix this? So, you know, that's why these topics appear on multiple exams, but it's important to remember that different aspects of it do. Yep. So it's not about, studying codes all the time. It's thinking about well, what aspect of building codes do I need to know for programming analysis? What aspect of building codes do I need for, um, you know, uh, PPV, you know, program, you know, um, yep. like or what kind of codes, yeah. What kind of codes you need for uh, a construction question is different right. than a planning question. Right. And so certainly there's this aspect of just, you know, studying, dividing up your studying so you don't feel like you're studying the same thing over and over because I'll tell you that the same content is not repeated over and over. And I know some candidates feel like they're seeing the same things over and over. Yeah, they, they I do. guarantee you they're not, right? It's just there are different questions. And sometimes maybe there's something similar that you feel like, didn't I answer this before? But but it's different because, and I can I can assure you that because the exam and any, any licensure exam, not just the ARE, but any licensure exam is going to have what's called a test specification, or we call it a test spec for short. And that is, we, we talk about it as being the blueprint for what's on the exam, okay? So when you look at the ARE handbook and you see there's six divisions and here are the content areas and here's you know the relative percentage that's in those content areas, right? That is the test spec. I mean, we're handing it to you. And so anytime that you know we're developing exam content, you know, there's this constant reminder of does that fit with the test spec? And is it appropriate to have this question um, you know, in this particular division? 
um, you know, what particular content area does this question apply to? We want to make sure that the exam stays balanced. I mean, that's part of having those forms balanced and, and fair, right? So, so that's, you know, an important thing to remember that the content varies. It really and truly does. And that's, you know, reading the handbook and becoming familiar with that, that's really the first step in preparing for your exams. The other thing I was, I wanted to add, because you were asking about, you know, with code and contract about, you know, not expecting, especially an entry level candidate to have memorized this stuff, that they should be able to, to look at those references, certainly in the office they would. Um, and I absolutely agree. We, we don't expect people to just regurgitate information on the exam. Um, again, in the 5.0 handbook, at the, towards the beginning is a section that talks about cognitive levels. Yes. Um, and so just kind of a, a quick primer on what that is. It's is the it idea this? that, yes, that. So when we think about content, um, you know, any, anything that we're, we're thinking about, right? There, there's different ways of thinking about information. And I mean, this is in any educational setting, any exam setting. You know, the idea of, you know, if I ask you, what is my minimum handrail extension at the bottom of the stair? And you tell me, great, inches. that tells me that you have memorized a piece of code and you've remembered it, right? But that's not what the ARE is about. Because if I was just gonna ask you a bunch of questions like that, I don't know that you're competent to actually practice architecture. I do know that you're competent at memorizing stuff. So, you know, when we talk about those cognitive levels on the exam, it's really, the, the next level above that is, do you understand the material and can you apply it to a given situation? And then beyond that is, okay, well now if I give you um, three different pieces of information about this, can you now synthesize those together and then make a judgment about what an architect needs to do in that situation, right? So those understand and apply questions and the analyze and evaluate questions that's what the ARE is. And so that's why on our case studies, we have all of those resources you know, attached, you know, provided to candidates. Um, the questions on the exam where you know, we're asking about a particular you know, code item, oftentimes there's, there's actually just a table from IBC that's you know, an exhibit in a particular question or an excerpt from a contract. You know, Cause it's really about, you know, I can give you the code book you know, look at, I'm giving you this, the portion that's relevant to this question, but now what are you going to do with it, right? It's about, and that's this again, going back to that 2012 practice analysis that drove these changes to 5.0 that, you know, was launched five years ago is, you know, can you as a candidate demonstrate your ability to make those, those judgments that licensed architects are responsible for making when they're responsible for a project, right? And that's what our boards want to know before they give you a license. Yep. And well, I think that's where the, the huge disconnect is. You know, one of the, the things I picked out was, you know, knowing the contracts inside out is, is key. Well, you know, if, if maybe that person, you know, misinterpreted it, maybe it was more about the general or, you know, maybe there was a code section or something like that. But um, if the problem with the test was trying to come up with, hey, handrail extensions are 12 inches, right? Well, the book, having the code book would, would help solve that. Um, 
because you'd know where to look, you know, you'd, you'd be able to double check. But if that's not in there, as you're telling me, if it's not that memorization and it is analysis, then, um, the disconnect is that people are successfully practicing and doing all these things, but then they can't do it on the test. So what is happening? Because to be, you know, I asked and uh, you know, is 50 whatever percent, you know, acceptable. And it, and it seems like it is. And I just, I just have, we have from 15 now, you know, you know, multiple people have failed the test. That's totally fine. Um, I'm not saying that they're not going to pass all of them. I think it's ex- expected to, you know, fail one or two, but for people to not be able to translate being a great professional and having a 50% fail rate, there's something going wrong. There's something going wrong. And I thought one of the things was having those resources available because then you wouldn't have, when you're studying for, let's say the C, one of the tests that has all the contract. People are literally like looking in, trying to memorize, taking notes, all that, you know, like putting a lot of brain power because it feels like questions are coming from all over the place. And I think it might be scrambling them versus, hey, these three tests have the contracts on them. You can bring, you know, someone can print out a book that has the watermark with all the contracts. You should know where to look. You should know where to find the information. They will review it. They will understand it. Boom, I got that part studied for. Oh, code questions. I need to know where to look up what. I need to know how to find things. I need to know what parts are in which sections. That applies. Boom. And then, then they could more easily focus on these synthesize and analysis or, or, or these other things. Um, so I don't know if I have a question there. <laughs> I just have a um, other professions which are different but are as equally professional and responsible as, as us don't have as low as a fail rate. And it's hard to see, it's hard to see people that put in master's degrees and then study for five years and then can't pass the test yet can push plans through construction and be, you know, out there in the field answering questions and getting things done. Well, I agree. I mean, that, that is frustrating for sure to have studied for something for so long. And it's something about it is not clicking. And what I'm saying uh, is they're not dumb. They're not dumb people. Right. Yeah, no, I get <laughs> they're that. They're very intelligent and, people. Sure. And, you know, I hear from those candidates. I know that I see them on the ARE community asking those questions as well. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I personally, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I would say that NCARB does not have a target pass rate that we're trying to achieve. It is truly each individual is judged on their own merits, you know, as far as their demonstration of competency. Um, you know, if a candidate is really struggling um, to, to get that and they say, but I've got all this experience and I've read all of these books. You know, I, actually I was um, uh, chatting with someone earlier today who said, you know, sometimes it's, it's about gaining more experience. Sometimes it can almost be about having too much experience. And I know that, you know, when contracts comes up, you know, we often hear from candidates who say, but my firm doesn't use AIA contracts. Like, how come this is what we have to study? And it's well, because there, we we have to have something, right? I mean, I, I, I don't have a window into all of the specific custom contracts that every firm in this country has. And it wouldn't be fair for us to expect candidates 
to look specifically at the contracts that, you know, that you're using at your firm that's maybe, and I actually have no idea if you use AI contracts or not, but, you know, it wouldn't be fair for me to pull up some custom contract that was written just for the exam. Because, I mean, then how on earth is a candidate going to prepare for that, right? So, sure, thinking about contracts specifically, we do base, you know, say in the exam handbook, um, for this division, we recommend that you study these AIA contracts, and here's the version that you should be looking at, right? And a lot of that is because we need to give candidates a baseline. And the, the whole idea about contracts is you should just understand how a contract is put together and how you as, a, as an architect would be responsible for fulfilling that contract. Um, I think sometimes you know, candidates, and I mean, I had this experience as well, practicing, sorry, there's a truck going by my house. No worries, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't too loud over here. Okay, so, you know, sometimes, you know, we have this experience working in firms of, well, you know, my firm doesn't use AA contracts, we use this other one that's really sure. specific, or, um, you know, my experience going to job sites might have been very different from what's spelled out in the architect's handbook of professional practice. But, you know, I, you know, as NCARB, I, I, I'm not going to expect someone to know about my specific experience. Again, we have to have that, that sort of baseline measure of competency, you know, and everything to you're keep saying the exam fair for everyone. And so I, I do think sometimes for candidates, they, there, and I'm not saying this is across the board, so I don't want someone to say, no, that's not it. But I'm just saying for some candidates, it might be that, you know, maybe you've gotten used to or just maybe the way it's done at your firm happens to be in a very specific customized direction that maybe varies a bit from sort of that, that baseline that, you yep. know, we, we have to kind of establish for an exam that is given to every candidate throughout the U.S., and, and so that's, that's, again, where we recommend things like the architect's handbook of professional practice. Yep. And, and that's spot on. I mean, what you just said is what is just revert, repeating, you know, on the message boards and, and, and all over the place. And I've even heard it, um, you know, uh, there's some question, I'm making up something about, you know, going to the site, right? What should I do here? Um, and, and the standard says this way, but the firm practices it in some other way. You know, they have some other form, they have some whatever. Um, and the, it's, you know, they've narrowed it down from four to two. And it's like, I can't remember if my firm does it the standard way or they have their own version of it, right? Um, but the difficulty is knowing that that is true, that not all people have the same contracts not all people practice exactly the same, but you do need to have that standard degree, 100% on it. You need to have that baseline. Wouldn't it then, wouldn't a sufficient test though be, hey, whatever that question is, if they don't, you know, know the answer, um, they would have it, they would operate the same way they would operate in the firm. They would look at that reference material or that contract and they would know enough, like I'm, they're not going to look through every single contract, right? Everyone should be competent enough and should be tested enough to go to the right contract, go to the right section um, and, and find out what they're looking for, because that's how it's, it's happening in practice. And, and I think that's what I'm going for is to alleviate sort of those ones where it's, do I go with what I do or do I go with what is standard? You know, like, and, and they might not know which one is, is which. 
but it could be easily verified with the Arctex handbook on all tests, with contracts just on the three ones. There's three ones that have contracts in them. And then there's only three tests that have the IBC. Um, so I, I still think that that reference material, being able to bring it, would help people then focus on maybe the synthesis, the other part, because they wouldn't have to focus on trying to memorize the minute differences. Well, we're, we're not going to allow candidates to bring reference materials into the exam. So if that's, I think maybe where you were starting. Yeah, why, you know, why not bring the contracts? Because we provide everything a candidate needs in the exam. So I know sometimes candidates will say, I don't know, I read this question and I swear there is information missing. I guarantee you there, there's not information missing. The, the items we have, robust training, um, review, you know, guidelines for all of our volunteers who write our exam content. Um, all of that goes, you know, again, these are all architects who are writing that content. And I just want to point out that the architects who sit on our exam development committees um, come from all over the country. We have a mix of men and women. We have you know, racial and, and, and ethnic diversity. We have a mix of experience levels, you know, from recently licensed architects, folks you know, licensed less than three years, mid-career architects, more seasoned professionals, right? So we're bringing in that mix of experience, that mix of perspective from, you know, different parts of the country to really put together an exam that can, uh, that again, reflects that, that, that overall profession that we're, we're assessing competency for. Um, so content is written, it is reviewed, everything goes through a committee review. There is nothing that, you know, Joe, the item writer from Kansas wrote a question and boom, it's on the exam. Like it just doesn't happen that way, mm -hmm. right? Content is written, it's reviewed by a committee. It is reviewed again as the forms are put together before they actually go into the test center. So there's a lot of layers of that that help us ensure in answer to your question there, you know, one of those factors is, is everything a candidate needs to answer this question actually here in this question? And, and so I assure you that those questions are all worded very carefully. And if it's in the, the STEM, which is what we call the, the question parts of an item, um, if the information is there, it's probably because you need it to be able to answer the question. Um, and if it's not, then you, know, you, you make your best judgment based on the information that's provided. Um, but as far as exhibits, you know, documents to reference, a lot of our items have exhibits so that candidates can then reference that material without this expectation that they've already memorized it. Yep. Um, yeah, th th that makes sense. Um, I, I still feel like there's a somewhat, uh, one of the things that was mentioned earlier was, you know, you look at every question and I think that's good. I think that's good for people to know too. Um, because, you know, I just asked my staff, you know, what, what do you think you know, is one of the issues. And one of them said is, well, some of the questions have double negatives in them, you know, and some of that actually comes from the code book. Like the code book will have like the term shall not be prohibited, which, which means allowed, you know, this is allowed, but they say shall not be prohibited, right? So it's like, well, if they're referencing the code book, then they're doing it kind of correctly. 
But I'm saying this to maybe assure the audiences that if there is a question that no one's getting right, I feel like you're looking at it. You know, you see that and say, what is happening here? You know, no one's getting this right. It might be confusing. It might not be, you know, whatever's wrong with the question. But then it was also a question of, hey, if there's a question everyone is getting right, that might not be a relevant test question, you know, to ask them. But I mean, it could be because there's, you know, there's certain things I want that, you know, every architect should know, right? And if every architect gets that right, that's fine. But if you see those questions that are high priority and taking them out, aren't you just lowering the probability, you know, that they're getting it right and thus keeping, you know, somehow uh, organically keeping it at that 55% pass level? Well, I don't mean to imply that just because people get a question right, then we're going to delete it. Um, that's definitely not what happens. And I'm sorry if I, if I accidentally suggested that. I think where we think about making the best use of the exam as an assessment tool, right? We do want to make sure that questions are, you know, really assessing candidates on information um, that's relevant and critical for practice. So um, for sure, we're, when we're looking at that item level data, it is making sure that, um, that, that there's not a question that's poorly written, that's confusing, that that's just, you know, maybe accidentally the, the wrong key, which is the, the answer, maybe it accidentally got miskeyed. I mean, that that is a rare occurrence, but it's something we look for, right? Sure. And, you know, the other thing that I just want to mention as far as items getting written and then reviewed and then placed onto forms is then for the next 12 months, they're in what's called a pretest mode. And I know we've talked about this on their website before, but you know, I'll share with you uh, now, you know, you're not familiar with it, is that pretest questions um, are questions that are on an exam. They are real questions. They are sprinkled throughout the test. You're never gonna know what's pretest and what's not. But the whole point is that how you do on those pretest items has no impact on your score on the exam. And so the whole intent there is that we're trying out the items before they start counting, um, which is a really important thing. And I know some candidates are like, oh, why are you giving me extra items? That is just annoying. This test no, is long this enough. Sense. Now you're telling me I have to answer extra ones that don't even count. Well, the whole point is that we want to make sure those items are good before they count towards your score. So every single new item goes through a pretest period and, and then it is assessed at the end of that pretest period. And, you know, our committees make that judgment of, you know, does the data look good for this or do we just need to retire this item and try again, right? So, I mean, that is another aspect of exam development that, again, is standard in the testing industry and it is a vital part of how we, um, you know, administer the exam. Yeah. Um, you know, the other but thing- But could you too, see how that, that perception though- the perception is either the prep and the universities are completely failing, you know, people in preparation for this or the, those pre-tests, I'm just five questions, however many it is, doesn't really matter, are examined, but they're examined and put in at the same difficulty level. And, you know, because how else would you decide, you know, you know, if it, okay, if it's written clearly, you know, maybe it's like you get rid of, ones that no one passes or you redo it, but um, 
it, it seems like there's a way to control the pass rate that way because you're seeing what people, what percentage they're getting them correct or not. So remember I mentioned the test specification, everything is written to the test spec, right? I mean, that is, that is how the exam is put together. So our volunteers do not look at pass rates. They do not look at the cut score when they're writing the content. All they're looking at is that test specification. The test specification lists the content areas. It lists the required cognitive level for each aspect of the particular division that they're working on. And that, that's it. So when they're writing a question, they're, they're looking at those primary source materials, whether it's the architect's handbook of professional practice or a book about, um, I don't know, MEB or a code book or contracts or, or what have you, those 39 other books that are listed in the ARE handbook, right? They're, every item that's written needs to have, ref, needs to be referenced back to a primary source material it needs to have a rationale. We're pretty strict with our item writers. They need to provide us a rationale of why this information is critical to practice, why we need to assess candidates on this information, why the right answer is right, why the wrong answers are wrong. We go through this whole extensive process. None of that is impacted by a pass rate or by a cut score. It all truly ties back to the test specification. When we think about, you know, difficulty level of an item, um, you know, another, another thing that we talk about during the item development process and during data review down the road is how long do questions take? And some questions take a long time. And it might, maybe we look at data and say, you know, a lot of candidates are getting this right, but gosh, it's taking them several minutes to get it right. Is that really a good use of their time on this overall assessment. And so it's it's something, and I can't say like that there's a certain threshold of like the right number of minutes or the wrong number of minutes, but this is again, where the, the psychometric support that we receive on developing and reviewing exam content really comes in handy. We're able to then notice patterns of, you know, certain items seems to be taking candidates longer than it used to. Maybe that's where we realize that, you know, perhaps that content is not relevant anymore to current practice. Um, maybe this item is taking too long because it involves too many calculations. So, you know, perhaps that that's one that should be rethought, not because it's incorrect or irrelevant, but because it's just, it's not a good use of candidates time, you know, when we're trying to just assess them for their competence. So, you know, and I guess, you know, just kind of bringing all of that up to say, there's a lot that we think about when we are developing content, but trying to peg the difficulty of a form to a desired pass rate is not a thing that happens. I mean, those are not, those are not tied together. It's not something that comes up as part of any committee work. Um, it truly is, what does the test specification require? Let's write something to that specification. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Michelle, I am so happy that you took on this conversation. I know it was difficult at times. I hope it really did provide some insight into the background of what you're doing, why you're doing it, what's important, dispelling some of the myths, um, really clarifying it. Uh, one thing that I got out of it that I think was extremely helpful was 
yes, there are those 39 materials, but break down, let's say the IBC is referenced on, on four of them. What project are you testing on? So what areas do you need to look in that reference material? You don't have to look at all of it, you know, um, because you're only testing in project man management. You're not uh, in, in construction evaluation. Um, so, I, so I hope that that can help focus people when they're thinking about testing and what they should look at and, and how they should think about it. Um, is there anything, um, advice, any clarifications, anything you want to leave people with any sort of links, um, anything else you want to tell people about, um, that you think is important? Uh, it, it's all yours. Um, oh gosh, that's such a great open-ended question. Um, yeah. you know, I, there's, you know, as far as the exam specifically, there's a lot of resources on our website. So definitely take a look at that. Um, and, you know, and I hope that those are helpful for candidates. I think, you know, backing out of that generally and just thinking about programs, you know, whether it's exam or, or AXP education requirements, you know, how do I get my license and, and sort of what's next, right? Or how come NCARB doesn't do it this way or, or what have you? you know, thinking about how, how individuals can get involved in the profession, you know, I guess maybe that's sort of the parting advice there, right? Like, I, and I mentioned earlier, you know, I came to my position at NCARB because of, you know, a series of volunteer positions that I'd had earlier that, you know, I developed this interest. I started to get to know people. I learned more about what was out there outside my architecture firm Right. And, and here I am. And I know several of us at NCARB, you know, had those sorts of similar experiences. All of our volunteers on our exam development committees and all the rest of NCARB's committees are also volunteers, right? They're practitioners or educators working in the profession who, you know, are volunteering, giving back to the profession and are part of that conversation about where do these programs go from here and whether it's about specifically helping develop content on the exam, which, you know, has that, it feels like kind of immediate impact. It's not exactly immediate, but it's a, a pretty significant impact on candidates. You know, we take that very seriously, or whether it's a committee that's thinking about what's next for AXP, or, you know, committees on other topics. We have um, think tanks um, for recently licensed architects and, uh, candidates who are currently in that process, you know, just that opportunity to be part of an annual focus group, to talk with NCARB, you know, and, and again, be part of that conversation. Think about how you can get involved with that, um, you know, and add your voice to that. And a lot of times that volunteering, it starts local, right? Whether it's, you know, volunteering as a licensing advisor, volunteering with your AIA chapter, um, get involved with your licensing board, right? When you hear, if you're licensed and you hear that there's openings on your state licensing board, you know, see if you can get involved. I mean, just being part of, part of any aspect of that is, you know, is how you make your voice heard and how you can affect change as well. Absolutely. I would just echo that hundred percent. Go check that out, get involved, uh, understand the process and then you can contribute to the process too. Um, so there you go. Thank you. And we will see you on the next episode.